Father in heaven, we ask again for fresh infilling of your spirit. Clear our minds of any distractions. Uh, you've blessed us with other messages today. Other seminar presenters have spoken to our hearts. We ask that as we focus in on what it means to be pure and how that will impact our lives, give us an understanding from your word. And uh, may we sense your spirit moving in our conversation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For, uh, for those of us that have not been here for the last two sessions, what have we talked about so far? Just by way of review, we've kind of outlined the biblical definition of purity. And what was our first text that we looked at? First John chapter 3, verse 2. You can turn there real quick. We'll just give a little review for those who have been attending other places. First John chapter 3, verse 2. My front row people moved to the back row, so I might have to come over here. <laughs> First John chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So when Jesus comes back the second time, we are going to be like him, right? The Bible says that when he comes, we're going to see him as he is. And then in the next verse, it says, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just like he is pure. So we're going to see the pure form of Jesus when he comes. And if we're going to do that, and we're going to be like him, then we are going to be pure ourselves, right? And this verse does not just refer to sexual purity. It refers to what do we say? Purity from anything that pollutes or defiles. In other words, a general sense of, of freedom from sin. Okay, then we went to Psalm chapter 24. This is where we've been getting our principles, definitions, messages from. Psalm chapter 24, 3 through 6. And this is where David asks the same question. Verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we've already looked at what it means to have clean hands and what it means to have a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And today, this undivided soul, undefiled seminar... We've looked at the clean hands, to live right with Jesus. We've looked at the pure heart, to be right with Jesus, overcoming temptation and sin. But there's one more element that we have not looked at that is absolutely important for purity. And that is the righteousness that God gives us. They've got uh, lots of sermons you've probably heard and lots of books on, on the righteousness of Christ. But today I want to look at a passage that outlines in the Old Testament what righteousness practically looked like for the Israelites. And then we're going to jump into the book of Revelation and we're going to look at four verses that deal with God's end time church and how righteousness is applied to them, to us today. All right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 19. What book? Numbers, Numbers chapter 19. 
We're going to start in verse 1. Are you there? There's some pages turning. Numbers chapter 19, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. So here you have kind of the children of Israel, they're, they've left Egypt, they're wandering through the wilderness, and, and somewhere in this time as they're building the sanctuary, and the Lord is outlining these requirements and rituals and, and offerings and sacrifices, this is one of the descriptions of the offerings that, or sacrifices that would be made. And we look at just the, the basic description of it, and it doesn't seem like a very good offering, does it? You have this red heifer. I mean, yeah, it's, it doesn't have any spot or blemishes, but you burn it, you throw in some wood and some scarlet and some hyssop, but you don't clean it at all. You don't, you know, take out the insides and wash them. It's just all of the blood, all of the fecal matter, it all gets burnt. It doesn't seem like a very attractive sacrifice compared to the other ones where you would clean and wash and burn them. We're going to look at, uh, starting in verse verse 1. The Lord speaks to Moses. says, make, take a, a heifer, a red heifer, and uh, burn it on the altar. What is this offering for? What is the purpose of the offering? It's in the Bible. It's not a trick question. Verse, uh, verse 9, the last phrase. What's the, for what? Purification from sin. So this offering in some sort of special way is supposed to illustrate to the children of Israel that somehow from this, purity can come out of that. Purification from sin can come out of this. This dirty animal who gets burnt with some, you know, some wood and some whatever. This is illustrating to them, to their mind, a graphic illustration. This is purification from sin. It doesn't really make sense to us because, one, we've never seen it happen. And we're not really accustomed to the culture. So just look at how the Bible explains this beautiful passage. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Are you there? First Peter chapter 1. And I'm not there. I'm in James. That's why it didn't look right. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. We have heard this... Sorry. We have heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I'm in 2 Peter. 1 <laughs> Peter chapter 1. <laughs> I was like, that didn't sound right either. All right. Knowing this, am I at the right place now? Yeah. Knowing this, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. So we look at all of the symbols and sacrifices of the Old Testament, they prefigure Jesus, his, his death, his sacrifice. And this offering, this sacrifice in particular, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 19 of Numbers, the Bible says, take a red heifer without blemish and without spot. The blemishes deal with what's on the inside. The spots are what's on the outside. And so you have the perfect blood of Christ, the perfect sinless body of Christ, redeeming us from our sins. This is the picture that he's trying to paint. Somebody whose sacrifice is perfect. There's no spots on the outside, no blemishes on the inside. And then the third thing that it says, and on which a yoke has never come. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have a yoke? said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, did he have a yoke? What is a yoke? Alright, so a yoke is like this big wooden, most of them are wooden that I've seen. It's like the solid board and then it's got two little rings in it and you stick the, the heads of the cow in it and they can pull plows. Or It's basically how you work your animals. But the requirement here is, says, upon whom never came a yoke. Did Jesus have a yoke? Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And then we have this quotation here. It was not only the cross that Christ gave himself for humanity, not only in the wilderness of temptation and in Gethsemane that he overcame in our behalf. Every day's experience was an outpouring of his life. Every day he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Excuse the typo. Jesus, how could he have a yoke? Because he was the creator of the universe. In heaven, people served him. Not people, angels served him. They ministered to his every need. He had everything. He would just have to speak the word and angels would carry out his wishes. And yet, when he came to earth, he had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. Every day, he was living his life, giving himself for humanity, wearing a yoke, taking the burden for us. Every day, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, taking the yoke for you and me. But the, the passage goes on in verse 4, Numbers chapter 19, verse 4. Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned up. In other words, every single aspect of this animal has to be consumed on the altar. Nothing is held back. There's no washing, there's no cleaning, there's no 
whatever else you do <laughs> before you offer animals. Everything is burned up. Nothing, there's nothing left. But what is really interesting, verse 6, and this is where I believe the heart of the whole message comes in. The priest shall take three things. What's the first one? The priest shall take cedar, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. So after they put this red heifer on the altar, it's burning, it's, it's on fire, they're supposed to take scarlet, hyssop, and cedar wood, and burn them and mix them in. This is not because it doesn't smell good. Okay? It's not because it just needs a little color and, or throw in some cedar wood to make it last longer. Each of these things has spiritual significance in reference to dealing with this offering. Turn to, uh, turn to the book of Psalm chapter 92. Psalm chapter 92, and um, just want to look at one verse here, two verses here, verse 12 specifically. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Cedars are like what in the Bible? Do you know? Cedars are, you know Solomon built his temple out of cedar wood. It was supposed to be the highest, hardest wood around. The best wood around. And the Bible uses this to illustrate the glory of Jesus. He came from heaven, the majesty the majestic place of the universe, came down. And here, Jesus, the sinless one, who angels ministered unto him. Like the cedars of Lebanon, he was the king of the universe. It is, it's the most costly wood around. You can't just go out, cut down a tree, and it's cedar. It comes from only a certain place. It only grows in certain areas. And so you have to go, and you have to get it, and it's very expensive. And you put this in the fire with the offering. So you have Jesus in the heavenly courts coming down, offering up his life on the cross, coming down from heaven. You have the cedars representing the glory of Christ, the heights of Christ. And then you have hyssop, which symbolizes the humility of Christ. You know, in Psalm 51, verse 7, after David sinned, he said, purge me with hyssop. It's a bitter herb. It's, it often grows behind other plants. You can't even find it on its own. Representing the humility of Christ, Jesus came down. In Philippians 2, you have that great passage of humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus came down from the glory of heaven and became a servant for you and for me. This is the imagery that the children of Israel are supposed to get. The glory of Christ. The humility of Christ. And finally you have the third element which is, which is scarlet. 
And when you, I don't know if, uh, if you thought of how scarlet is produced or how it was in, in, in there, but it's not just any place scarlet comes from. The, the picture of scarlet is you have this worm and it goes and it attaches itself to a piece of wood. And it lays its eggs and when its eggs are about to hatch, it releases this scarlet color to cover the eggs. And when it does that, the worm dies. So you have this picture of, of scarlet in this fire where the worm gives up its life to cover its young in their vulnerability. You've never thought about this before. It's clinging to the wood till its eggs grow to maturity. When the eggs grow to maturity, when they're just about to hatch, the worm expends all of its energy, giving off this scarlet color. Scarlet is the picture of a worm that clings to a piece of wood until its young have matured. Covered until they can grow and, and be worms by themselves. That's how scarlet, that's where the scarlet came from. And they would mix this in the fire. The blood of Jesus hanging, Jesus hanging on a cross, expending his life so that you and I can be covered. This is the picture. And this is what the Bible says in Numbers chapter 19. This is for purification for sin. It doesn't really make sense how something so dirty and, and uncleaned, not unclean, uncleaned, unwashed, can be a perfect sacrifice. But the heights of Christ, the glory of Christ, the humility of Christ, and the death of Christ. Jesus as the purification from sin. This is the message. But then it, the, the next step that they were supposed to do is they were to take it outside the camp. Verse 3, You shall give it to Eleazar the priest that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. Outside the camp. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Starting in verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. Everything in this offering points directly to Jesus. Jesus suffered outside the gate so that you and I can be saved. And then Paul goes on in verse 13, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. His blood covers us. The righteousness of Jesus is over us. And Paul says, let's go outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Let's lay everything that we have on the altar as well. The reproach of Christ, the shame of Christ, the death of Christ, we bear that name. We bear the name of Christians. We are supposed to meet him outside the camp. He says, bearing his reproach. Be burned on the same altar. You understand what, what's happening so far? The, in the Jewish mind, everything, every sacrifice that they had, every 
everything prefigured, and Paul is showing them how everything exactly pointed to Jesus in this offering. Jesus suffered outside of the gate. And this is the foundation of our, our worship. He died outside so that we can be purified from sin. Now let me just... Um, let me read this to you. This is from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, talking about this verse. The Christian's dedication of himself to a life of purity and holiness is an act of spiritual worship. He no longer offers animals in religious services that pertain to his reason. Thus, Peter described believers and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Jesus covers everyone with his blood who needs it, right? Go to Romans chapter 12. We looked at this verse already. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Jesus laid all upon the altar. Everything had to be burned in this sacrifice. But when you get to Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Everything that he had done in Romans to show leading up to this point, I beseech you therefore, this is the conclusion of his arguments, talking about the righteousness of Christ, how it covers us. I beseech you by the mercies of God. You should have been dead already. The righteousness of Christ covers you when you're vulnerable. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. By the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. How many sacrifices were alive in the Old Testament? How many sacrifices were alive? None. But Paul here says, you can be a living sacrifice. You're on the altar. You're burning on the altar, but you're not consumed. What's that? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Burning on the altar, but not consumed. This is your reasonable service. Or if you look at other Bible translations, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is the picture the Bible paints. If you want purity in your life, you've got to have the righteousness of Christ covering you. There is no substitute. There is no alternative. The righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Looking at God's end time church and the blood of Jesus that's applied to them. The sins that we are freed from. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Starting in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to God our Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So he has done what by his blood? He has washed us from what? Our sins. So sin as an enslaving bondage, the blood of Jesus releases us. The sins 
that we have committed. He washed us and He released us from them. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Just going to look at four verses. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Talking about the Lamb. Starting in verse 8. Now when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seal for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to God and we shall reign on the earth. What does the Lamb's blood do in this verse? Redemption. So the Bible claims that sin when it is an incalculable debt the Lamb's blood purchases. When you're filthy and dirty, the blood of Jesus cleanses. When you're unworthy and when you owe too much, His blood has purchased your sin, your salvation, covered by the righteousness of Jesus. But the Bible says more about it. And you can't see the, for some reason, I don't know why it's not quite coming up. But it's Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Spirit, sin as, as moral and spiritual defilement, when we've messed up our lives, when we've committed immoral acts, the Bible says the blood of the Lamb cleanses. He has washed their robes in his blood. Our garments, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. There's nothing good on our own that we can do. But Jesus cleanses those robes. He washed them in His blood. Sin as moral and spiritual defilement, the Lamb's blood cleanses. And sin as condemnation and guilt, Revelation chapter 12. And verse... 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let's just read verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives unto death. When Satan is accusing you and trying to lay all of the guilt of your past sins on your life, the blood of Jesus justifies. You have been made right with God. Remember that quote we read, just as if you had never sinned. 
when your life is polluted, when you're just dirty inside, the blood of Jesus can cleanse that. When you can't pay for your sins, Jesus' blood purchased that. When you've been morally and spiritually defiled, the blood of Jesus cleanses that. And when your guilt and condemnation come up, the Lamb's blood justified that. This is the message of Revelation for you and me. People living in the last days who want to see Jesus come have to have his righteousness. This is last day stuff. This is revelation. It doesn't get any more real. Jesus' blood cleanses from all sin. You can't quite see that. I don't know. Some of the last things didn't come through. But most precious is the blood of Christ, which cleanses from all sin. A sense of the redeeming love of Christ should lead us to embrace every opportunity of doing good. Every opportunity of doing good, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin, this redeeming love, it leads us not to be, not to just feel good. It leads us to, to actually doing good for others. Every opportunity of doing good we should embrace. Through the sacrifice made on our behalf, sins may be perfectly forgiven. When we surrender ourselves wholly to God and believe, I can't even read, is that better? <laughs> Through the sacrifices made on our behalf, our sins may be perfectly forgiven. When we surrender ourselves wholly to God and fully believe, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. The conscience can be freed from condemnation. Through faith in his blood, all may be made perfect in Christ. Amen? So it doesn't matter if we feel guilty. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us from that. Through faith in his blood, all may be made perfect in Christ. We may be perfectly forgiven. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, like, it's so hard for me to, to believe that I'm forgiven because I've done so many things wrong. I've messed up so bad in the past. And, uh, and you know, when, when you work with university students, they're not the innocent high schoolers that they used to be. And oftentimes at that level, at, at that age, you know, you kind of come into adulthood on your own, away from, you know, parents, sometimes away from church. And you're experiencing all of these new things that sometimes you know flat out they're wrong. And I've had people come up and tell me, hey, I, this is, you know, what I'm dealing with. And they're like, you know, Jesus can't forgive me because I knew better. I knew I wasn't supposed to, you know, sleep with that person. <laughs> this is what someone told me. Jesus can't forgive me. But... Basically, when you're saying that, you're saying that your sin is more powerful than the blood of Christ. Right? You're saying, my sin is so powerful that I can never be forgiven. I am chained to the ground. When in reality, Jesus' blood can cut those chains and wash you and make you clean and make it so that it's as if you had never sinned because his blood is covering you. When the Father looks down at you, he sees Jesus, his blood covering you 
in your vulnerability until you can be that worm on your own. That is the picture of purity in the Bible. I guess that was my last quote. The, the problem is sometimes in our, in our culture, in our world, we're so focused on what we can do, right? You know, um, I have a friend who is a very hard worker. And he, he always, I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone who works harder than him. And if he doesn't get things done, he feels like he has wasted his day. You know, like studying and reading a book, you can read and read and read and read and read, and pretty soon you're done with the book and you put it away and you feel accomplished. Or if you mow a lawn, you know, you see those nice perfect rows and, and, uh, and you feel good because it looks good. Or, you know, if you crochet or, I don't know what you guys do here in Canada, really. <laughs> what do Toronto Ontarians people do, huh? Plow snow. Plow snow. When you see the perfect line of snow, the perfect snow bank on each side, and that, you know, there's no snow left on the ground, there's no little strips of snow in the ground, you know, it's all gone. You feel accomplished. But if you spent four hours shoveling and it was still snowing, <laughs> Welcome to Toronto, yeah. If you spent four hours shoveling and you looked and you got to the end of your driveway and you turned around and it looked just like you hadn't started. You would not feel accomplished. <laughs> we base our, our value on what we've done in life, on what we can do. But when it comes to our sins, there is nothing that we can do. You can shovel and plow all you want, but the snow keeps coming back. It's like you haven't done anything. There's nothing that we can do to purify our lives. You can try to live right. You can try to be right. But unless there was no, unless there's righteousness involved, there is nothing that we can do apart from Christ. We've been looking at Psalm chapter 24. I want to just go back there. We're going to end there in our study today. Going to end just a little bit early and, and take some questions. So I'm chapter 24, but this time we're going to start from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. I want you to see the context of the verses. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. When we read this verse, this actually is a prophecy about the Messiah's ascension after His resurrection into heaven. And we have this picture where angels are echoing back and forth 
this seed. Who is the king of glory? On this side. And then the other ones say, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And as Jesus is ascending into heaven, angels are shouting you know, back and forth, he is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is holy. Who can enter into heaven? Jesus, right? Because of his sacrifice. He was the one who lived the perfect life, who had the clean hands. He had the pure heart. He died for righteousness. And so the only one who can live a pure life is Jesus. There is no other person who lived right, who was right, who ascended into heaven, who stood before the Father. Nobody else. But the Bible says that when he comes back, we will have to be like him if we want to see him because he's coming back pure. When we look at this passage, Jesus is purity. He is the biblical definition. And if we want to be pure, we've got to have his righteousness. You and I can't stand before God in our own filthy rags. Can't stand before him and say, look at all the good things I did. Look at the youth conference I helped organize. Or look at the church members I visited when they were sick or staying in the hospital. Or You can't point to that. You can't say, you know, I never did any of those bad things. You know, I didn't watch TV and I didn't eat cheese. <laughs> you know? And I stayed away from pork and I kept the Sabbath and I fasted and I prayed. No, you can't say that. When you get to heaven, it's not what you didn't do. It's not even what you've done. It's what Jesus did for you. We've talked about, and if you've missed it in our other seminars, go back and listen, because doing the right things and having your heart changed are important. But without Jesus' righteousness, they would avail nothing. And so we have a picture today before us that the blood of Jesus can wash away every sin, can change the heart, can break the chains and free us and cleanse us and make us right. Do you want that righteousness to cover you today? Do you want to be made perfect in the blood of the Lamb? I do. Because we don't even know how sinful we really are because our heart deceives us. But the Lord searches the heart, amen. We're going to pray and then we're going to take some questions. If you guys um, have any questions, we'll take them after prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, you've been so gracious and merciful to us. You've told us that Jesus and his righteousness can stand in our place. When the chains of sin bind us, your blood washes us and purchases us and breaks the chains and cleanses us. These are the last days. This is the end of time. We need the righteousness of Christ to cover us because you are coming back soon. 
We want to see you as you are. Even as you're pure, we want to be pure. We want to be free from the entanglements of sin, from the pollution in our lives, from the impurity of our hearts. Lord, search us and try us and see if there's any wicked way in us and then lead us in the way of everlasting life. If there are any here struggling, I pray that you would help us to cast our burdens on you. You care for us. You've given all for us. You left heaven. You came down. You died. You poured out your blood. Lord, we pray that that blood would cover each one here. That we would live covered in the blood of Jesus. This is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.